Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products, such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage, and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. This is Season 3 of the Haunted UK Podcast, and we're going to be picking up where Season 2 left off. We'll be continuing our journey to tell stories of ghosts, poltergeists, unsolved disappearances, mysterious creatures, haunted locations, UFO encounters, and much more. So without any further delays, let's get started. Before we carry on, I'd just like to give a shout out to some amazing people who've donated to the show via coffee. They are Keith Dale, Mark Roberts, Linda Fulaney, Emma Sumner, and Hannah Field. Thank you so much for your donations and for your support. If you'd like to donate to the show, details will be coming up very soon. But for now, let's get back to this episode. In 1910, illustrious and ambitious jewellery dealer Pierre Cartier made a gamble on a diamond that could have put the world-famous Cartier jewellery brand in danger of bankruptcy. Cartier wanted to continue the family tradition of offering only the best and largest diamonds to the most exclusive and wealthy customers. But with a background history as tormented and bloody as the stone he was determined to buy, who would take the chance on purchasing such an item? Throughout its troubled existence since its discovery, this particular diamond had garnered a reputation of being cursed. But surely that was just a myth, wasn't it? is episode 24 of season 3 of the Haunted UK podcast, and in this episode, we're going to discover the cursed history of the Hope Diamond.
The history of the Hope Diamond literally goes back over a billion years, when it was formed deep inside the Earth, but where it was actually mined from is still a mystery. We know that it was Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, who was a merchant dealer in precious gems, who somehow came to own the diamond in India in around 1666. It's thought that it was found in the Kolor mine in the Gunter district, but this has never really been verified. Some records suggest that it only came to be in the possession of Jean-Baptiste through the crime of theft, but again, this is unclear. What is known is that Jean-Baptiste managed to get the stone out of India and back to Paris sometime after its discovery, probably in around 1668. At this stage, the diamond was uncut, but after its first cut, it became known as the Tavernier Blue, due to the boron atoms within its structure. It's this unique structure that gives the diamond its blue colour, making it extremely rare and also extremely valuable. Jean-Baptiste had the reputation of being an adventurer and a storyteller, and would regularly entertain his friends and peers with tales of his experiences from all four corners of the globe. It was when he was invited to see the French king, Louis XIV, in around 1669 that the diamond first changed hands. The king was enthralled by the diamond's beauty, and in 1678 he had it recut and set into a cravat pin. The diamond was then known as the Blue Diamond of the Crown of France, but most historians have called it the French Blue. Around 70 years later, Louis XV had this cravat pin disassembled and had the French Blue reset into a much more elaborate pendant, which was worn by various members of French royalty until it was stolen in 1792 during the French Revolution. Over the next few years, it seemed to disappear, probably because of the attempts on the black market to sell it, and it was never seen again. But 20 years later, another blue diamond appeared in London. By this time, the Statute of Limitations had just passed, so nobody could be prosecuted for the theft of the French blue, and this new diamond in London was, by amazing coincidence, the same size, the same weight, and the same cut as the infamous French diamond. From this time in 1812 to around 1830, the whereabouts and ownership of the diamond are a little sketchy. It allegedly came into the possession of King George IV, but there doesn't seem to be any royal records kept which prove that the gem was owned by the Crown. However, it's common knowledge amongst royal researchers that King George wasn't the best at keeping records, and on many occasions would mix up what was actually the crown jewels and the family heirlooms. There are references made to this diamond in writings and also in artwork, but as stated, there's no actual proof. It was the diamond's next owner who would give it its now famous name. After the death of King George in 1830, a wealthy London banker and financier, Henry Philip Hope, bought the diamond for between 48 and 66,000 pounds. In today's money, that would be in the millions of pounds bracket, so not exactly pocket change. The gem from then on would be known as the Hope Diamond, and it stayed in the Hope family's possession until around 1902, when it was sold by Francis Hope. 
It's unclear where the Hope Diamond went for the next five years. Some say that it languished in a vault or a safe for this time, occasionally being shown to prospective buyers or even loaned out. But it wouldn't be until 1908 that the Hope Diamond would resurface once again. Before we carry on with this episode, I'd just like to tell you about the Haunted UK podcast's coffee account. If you love the show and want to help out that little bit more, then get yourself over to coffee, that's K-O hyphen F-I, and search for the Haunted UK podcast. And for just a subscription of £3 per month, you'll get a shout out in an episode of the main show, chances to get your hands on free Haunted UK podcast merchandise, and you'll also soon be in line for bonus content bite-size episodes. Getting to a target of at least 30 subscribers is the aim, and I know that with your help, it's easily achievable. And it's literally just the price of buying one coffee per month. If you'd rather not subscribe, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Every little bit helps. So if you want to help the podcast grow to the next level, then pop over to Coffee and make your donation. Coffee, why not buy us one? Now, let's get back to the episode. This time, it was sold to Salim Habid, who was an extremely wealthy Turkish gemstone collector. It was bought allegedly on behalf of a sultan of the Ottoman Empire, but yet again, it was soon sold to claw back money because of debt. So we're now back to where we started with Pierre Cartier. He bought the Hope Diamond in 1910 for 500,000 francs, which is around $2.2 million in today's money, and was quite aware of the curse that was attached to this precious stone. He was also aware that finding a buyer who not only had the money to spend on an item like this, but who would also be the next in line to take on the curse would be a huge ask. But Cartier was an expert salesman. He knew what attracted buyers, and he knew how to make gems stand out to clients who would find the prospect of owning them irresistible. His approach to selling the Hope Diamond would be no different, and he felt that he knew the exact buyers who wouldn't be able to resist purchasing it. Evelyn Walsh McLean and her husband, Ned. The source of Evelyn's wealth was down to her father, who was the owner of, at the time, one of America's largest gold mines, and she was a stickler for expensive jewellery. Two years earlier, at 22 years old, she married 19-year-old Ned McLean, who was, as with Evelyn, born into wealth because of his family owning the Washington Post. Money was no object for this couple, and later that year, Cartier set up a meeting with them at their hotel to pitch the sale of the Hope Diamond. In a stroke of mystery, he placed the diamond in a box locked by wax seals and then went over the gem's history and its curse. His strategy looked like it was working as both Evelyn and Ned were practically falling off their seats with curiosity, but when he opened the case, the deal fell flat. Cartier left the hotel without the sale but he wasn't a beaten man just yet. He felt that he needed to enhance the diamond's beauty even more, so he sent the gem back to America with specific instructions on having it set into a new frame. As well as the frame being oval, Cartier decided to surround it with smaller diamonds which seemed to make the Blue Hope diamond glow as it caught the light, 
A while later, he again showed the diamond to Evelyn, who, whilst being impressed with its new oval setting and chain, still wasn't convinced enough to hand over any money. But Cartier was convinced that she was still the right buyer. He suggested to her not to make any rash decisions straight away, and to hold on to the Hope Diamond for a while to see how she felt about it in a few days' time. This different strategy worked like a charm, and the longer Evelyn had the necklace, the more she wanted to own it. They finally agreed a price of $180,000, around $5 million today, with the first instalment of $40,000 to be paid as soon as possible. But the money didn't arrive. Pierre Cartier even put a clause in the contract stating that the item could be returned if it caused a fatality. But even weeks after this, the first payment still never arrived. The Cartier family had had enough and filed a lawsuit against Evelyn and Ned McLean to force them into paying for the diamond. After taking the necklace to a church and having it blessed, Evelyn eventually gave in and finalised the purchase, but even after this, she was still given a stark warning from the ex-wife of the man who gave it its name, Thomas Hope, that it would bring her nothing but tragedy, and to a certain extent, she was right. But before we go through some of the notable misfortunes which the previous owners and wearers of this amazingly beautiful, rare and precious diamond have suffered, the first question that we should tackle is, where did the curse come from? For that, we need to go back to the days of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. According to the legend, Jean-Baptiste didn't acquire the diamond from a mine in India. Instead, he prized the gem from the forehead of an extremely important and sacred statue of the Hindu goddess Sita. This was unforgivable, and for this crime, whoever owned or wore the gem would be cursed with bad luck and death. And it wasn't long before the curse took its first life. Jean-Baptiste's. After selling the diamond, he decided to take a trip to Russia, where he was ripped apart by wild dogs. Next in line was Nicolas Fouquet, who was a French official and a close friend and confidant of King Louis XIV. He wore the diamond only once, but once was enough. His friendship with the king completely broke down and he was imprisoned for 15 years. But the king wouldn't get away so easily either. He was the one who bought the blue diamond from Jean-Baptiste in the first place and he would pay a heavy price as the gem allegedly not only caused his death by way of gangrene due to an infected wound, but also managed to gain responsibility for the deaths of all of his legitimate children, except for one. Years later, it was the turn of King Louis XV and his wife Marie Antoinette. Louis XV inherited the diamond. Marie Antoinette allegedly wore the diamond. Both were executed by guillotine in 1793. But these are moments in history where revolution was happening. Surely a cursed gem couldn't have caused all of this, could it? Would these huge events have still happened if the diamond hadn't been in their possession? Who knows for sure, but the deaths and bad luck didn't stop there. 
and the diamond was beginning to harbour a dark and evil reputation. Before we carry on with this episode, here's a promo for the great podcast, Certainly Strange. Attempted murder on a ghost, cursed paintings burning houses down and lighthouse keepers disappearing without a trace. The world is filled with astonishing stories that will make you go and shrug, saying, well, I don't know what's going on here, but it is certainly strange. My podcast, Certainly Strange, is a collection of these bizarre tales. Each episode I tell a separate story and share my own unfiltered opinions and theories about it. If this sounds interesting to you, come and join me on this journey through the strangest parts of our history. Now, it's back to the episode. In 1792, Marie-Louise Princesse de Lamballe suffered an extremely horrific death. At the time of the revolution, she was a close friend of Marie Antoinette and superintendent of her household. Because of her closeness to the royal family, and especially the Queen, she was tried for her knowledge of a treasonous plot which had emanated from the royal court. She refused to proclaim her hatred for her king and queen, but did accept an oath of liberty and equality. Instead of sentencing her to death and executing her, she was led outside where a mob waited. She was stripped, raped, tortured, stabbed, mutilated and finally beheaded. Her head was displayed on a pike and paraded through the streets along with her body. She was taken to the building where Marie Antoinette was being held and displayed in front of her as a warning of what was to come. And we already know what happened to Marie Antoinette. After the diamond was stolen in 1792, it fell into the hands of a man named Wilhelm Fowles. Fowles was tasked with recutting the gem from its approximate 115 carat weight to its 45 carat weight, which it is today. After recutting, Wilhelm's son became mentally unhinged and killed his father, then committed suicide himself. Another victim to fall foul of the curse was a Greek merchant and stockholder who allegedly purchased the diamond in 1910 and quickly sold it to Pierre Cartier. Not long after, he drove his car off a cliff, killing himself, his wife and his child. No matter how much death, destruction and bad luck followed the Hope Diamond, it still managed to hypnotise potential buyers into making the final leap of owning it. Even the family who gave the diamond its name weren't free from suffering the curse. Henry Philip Hope never married, so upon his death in 1839, his estate was split up between his three nephews with the Hope Diamond going to the eldest one, Henry Thomas Hope. By this time, the diamond had been reset as a medallion with smaller diamonds set around the outside to enhance its appearance. It would be regularly loaned out and given to exhibitions to be shown to the public, but other than that, it was kept in a vault. Was this to either play down the story of the curse or to minimise the family's exposure to it? 
Henry Thomas Hope and his wife only had one child, and her name was Henrietta. She also had a child, Henry Francis, and he would play a pivotal role in the downfall of the whole family dynasty. When Henry Thomas Hope died in 1862, it was his wife Adele who took on the responsibility of looking after the Hope Diamond. And not that much really happened during this period. Was this simply because she had kept the Hope Diamond locked away? Adele sadly died in 1884, but on this occasion, it was her instruction that the entirety of the Hope family's estate, including the Hope Diamond, would be placed into trust and handed over to Henrietta's son, Henry Francis, when he came of age. One of the conditions of the trust handing over control of the estate was that he would have to take the Hope name, which he dutifully did. It was quite obvious to those around him that Henry Francis Hope liked to spend money and lavish himself with expensive items, and it came as no surprise when in 1887 he inherited the Hope estate that he was much more interested in the monetary value of what he had than preserving his family's name and stature. Regardless of all of this wealth that he had, he couldn't sell anything unless the rest of the trust agreed to it. So technically, his hands were tied. In 1894, he married an American showgirl by the name of Mei Yohi. And they both enjoyed extremely high standards of living, with Mei wearing the Hope Diamond on a number of occasions. But the curse was about to deal a crushing blow. The pair had been literally burning through money, and their lifestyle soon caught up with them in more ways than one. Henry Francis Hope found himself broke, and now being supported by his wife. If he could only sell the Hope Diamond to pay off his debts, he would be fine. But the trust wouldn't allow it. A lengthy court battle ensued, piling even more debt on the already broke Henry Francis Hope, and it was in 1901 that the trust finally allowed Hope to sell the diamond. In a final sting, after going through all of the huge legal fight to sell off the diamond and reset their financial commitments, May Yohi left Hope for an American man named Putnam Bradley Strong, who was a captain in the United States Army. Had the curse been the overriding factor that not only wrecked Henry Francis Hope's marriage, but also left him on the verge of financial ruin? With the Hope Diamond now in the hands of Evelyn and Ned McLean, the curse would continue to rear its head. Evelyn loved jewellery, and she felt that wearing it made her feel empowered and confident, and she wore the Hope Diamond, in her words, like a charm. But if you remember, she wanted the necklace blessed before she would take ownership of it. It was blessed at the church of Russell Monsignor, and even as the blessing took place, the lighting inside the church began to flicker, and even thunder began to sound outside. It was as if the curse on the precious stone was venting its anger at being in such a place and having this ceremony performed on it. And it wasn't long before the Macleans would learn that the curse may have been real after all. Before we continue, here's another promo for a great podcast called Spilling the Crime. Hey 
guys! And welcome to Spilling the Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by... Me, Umberto Melo. And me, Jonas Grancha. Join us in this big adventure where we will be talking about crimes with a tipsy twist. How this crime happens, I want to know what the fuck is the unwrapped chocolate. Her name is Sharma Melgenlings. Magmar? Magmar? Magmar meningitis? Where's the dick, Lorena? Where is the dick? Oh, what is this? Are those your enemies? <laughs> are they after me too? <laughs> Do you ever feel like a plastic bag? <laughs> And then he masturbated on the carpet. <laughs> Dangerous I mean, yeah, questions. No, was, yeah, yeah. Why? We did not agree with this. <laughs> Carl said that. Don't copyright. Like, what? Don't copyright us. Don't copyright us. Yes, please don't block us. So grab your glass, because this feeling is about to begin. Now. It's back to the episode. Close friends of Evelyn and even her mother-in-law urged her to sell the Hope Diamond back to Pierre Cartier, but she refused. Shortly after this, her mother-in-law died. Then Evelyn's son, Vincent Walsh McLean, died after being hit by a car. He was just nine years old. And in a strange twist of fate, the uncle who he was named after also died aged just 17 years old in another car accident. The curse kept on going, with her daughter Evelyn Washington McLean dying from an overdose of sleeping pills at just 24 years old. The family's newspaper, The Washington Post, went bankrupt, causing the McLean's huge financial troubles. Her husband, Ned McLean, left her for another woman, but didn't escape the curse fully at all. Ned was taken to court by Evelyn, who bitterly fought for what she felt was hers from the marriage. This was a case that was largely in the public eye, and it seemed to be the undoing of Ned McLean. After the divorce, he continued to spend money as if it were going out of fashion, and friends began to notice his behaviour becoming unpredictable and erratic. He ended up being committed to a mental institution and dying there. Evelyn never really recovered after the sale of the Washington Post newspaper. What money she received never covered the massive debts which had been accumulated, and even after her death in 1947, the curse would still continue to affect the family. Evelyn's estate was then put into trust, so that she could avoid outside sources selling her assets, such as the Hope Diamond and other jewellery that she owned, to cover further debts. The trust was instructed to separate the estate up equally between her grandchildren when the eldest reached 25 years of age. But this was deemed too long to wait by the controlling trustees, and they overruled the instructions, selling all of her jewellery, including the Hope Diamond, to another famous New York diamond merchant, Harry Winston. The money raised from the sale of this collection went towards settling Evelyn's outstanding debts. So was the Hope Diamond and its curse now responsible for the gradual decimation and breakdown of the McLean family dynasty? 
Harry Winston knew the value of the Hope Diamond as both a precious stone and also as a source of mystery and intrigue due to the alleged curse attached to it. So he decided to take it, along with the entire collection purchased from the Evelyn McLean estate, on tour. The tour was exclusively limited to America only and ran from 1949 to 1953 under the name The Court of Jewels, and throughout this period, the curse seemed to subside. But not for long. There was one last victim of the curse to come. On the 10th of November 1958, Harry Winston was persuaded by the Smithsonian to donate the Hope Diamond to the museum so that it could go on display for the public to see. Harry agreed and simply put it in the post and mailed it at a cost of $145.29. This included $2.44 for postage and the balance for insurance. The package arrived at the mail house and was given to James Todd, who was sent on the task of delivering the item. Shortly after making the delivery, it was thought that the curse would finally be put to rest behind the glass enclosure that was to house the Hope Diamond, but it wasn't to be. James Todd's wife died not long after, then his dog. Then he was involved in an accident whilst driving a truck, resulting in his legs being crushed. After making a full recovery, he was involved in a second vehicle accident and this time received head injuries. His house also burned to the ground. James Todd is the last recorded case of the Hope Diamond's curse exerting its alleged power. To this day, the Hope Diamond still resides at the Smithsonian, attracting some 7 million visitors every year to look in awe and wonder at this marvel of our natural world. But is there really a curse attached to this beautiful and extremely rare diamond? Curses have been part of our culture as a race and species for thousands of years. Whether it be a cursed Egyptian mummy or tomb, a cursed painting, a curse inflicted by witchcraft, many of us find the possibility of something being cursed as fascinating. And being the naturally curious creatures that we are, humans tend to want to get as close to the curse as possible, just to see if it's real. The problem with the curse of the Hope Diamond is the same problem that we have with many cursed items. Because of the time that has passed, we have huge difficulty in proving that any of the events that started the curse even happened. In the case of the Hope Diamond, there is no evidence of a Hindu statue even existing, let alone one being adorned by priceless gems. It's just legend, hearsay. But legend has to start somewhere, doesn't it? What about all of the death and misfortune that followed the Hope Diamond? Well, surely these could be put down to coincidence and natural events. There are also large gaps in time when the curse didn't seem to have any effect at all. Are curses like the phenomenon of placebos? If you believe that what you're taking will have an effect, you'll try your best to convince yourself that it's doing you the world of good, when in fact, it's not doing anything at all. Were the many owners of the Hope Diamond over the years convinced by the previous owner's history that there was something truly wrong with the gem? And if that's the case, 
wouldn't they begin to blame the cursed diamond for any misfortune or death to strike? As with most things in the paranormal realm, it's down to what you believe. But if you've experienced the paranormal, whether that be ghosts, poltergeists or curses, then nobody can deny what you feel you have been through. So we end this episode with a friendly warning that if you find yourself in the Smithsonian one day, looking directly at the Hope Diamond through its glass enclosure, then just beware and take extra care when you leave, because the next person who could fall foul to the curse could be you. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK Podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing, and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly, and that's all down to you. So, huge thanks to you all. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a third season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there again. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 3's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions.com at hotmail.com that's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com it's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think this podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands England for a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode please refer to the show's notes thank you all so much again for listening and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.